la 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 You're listening to Silver Threads, the podcast celebrating 25 years of the Hares and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Supported by the UNESCO City of Literature Known Bookshops Fund, in association with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and in partnership with Melbourne Library Service. Warning, the following program contains explicit content and themes. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Silver Threads podcast. In this episode, we'll be listening to a reading from legendary queer writer and activist Joan Nessel. The following piece, This Huge Light of Yours, comes from Joan's out-of-print book, A Restricted Country, and depicts her experiences during the 1960s civil rights movement in the United States. This is Joan Nessel, and I want to thank everyone who's made these recordings possible. I'll be recording some of the longer pieces from a restricted country, which is now out of print. So this is a way of preserving these words. And I want to thank the generous readers and listeners in this new country of mine, listening to these words born in the Bronx so long ago. The the first piece I'm going to read is called This Huge Light of Yours. And it is, it grows out of my involvement in the civil rights movement in America in the mid-1960s. This huge light of yours, it's dedicated to Arissa Reed, for whom I did not keep the porch light burning bright enough. Arissa Reed is a young African-American woman who had been raped, who came to the archives, the Lesbian History Archives, to find a safe place. But we couldn't keep her going, and she committed suicide. At a very, at much too soon, if it's always too soon. So this is my commemoration of Arisa as well. The 60s is a favorite target of those who take delight in the failure of dreams. For those who dabbled in social change or who stayed aloof from the passion of the times, the 60s has become a playground for nostalgia a pot-filled room of counterculture adolescents playing with anger. But it is a sad cynicism that jeers at the defeat of courage and commitment, and a selfish one, too. There is one group of Americans that cannot play with the 60s, cannot give those years to mockery and disdain. In Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas, in Watts and Harlem and Philadelphia, in luncheonettes and in movie theaters, on beaches, on school steps, and on buses, black Americans took history into their own work-worn hands, carried it on their tired feet until it became a different thing. Monday, March 15, 1965, was a notable day. In Alabama, early this morning, Wilcox County's first black voter of the 20th century was registered. This was after Jimmy Lee Jackson was murdered, after Reverend Reeves was killed, after hundreds were clubbed and beaten in Selma and Montgomery, after thousands were jailed, after endless months of children walking in hate-filled streets, after mothers and fathers and sons and daughters stood against guns, 
tear gas, horses, whips, water hoses, against city police, state police, and the National Guard. A country that does not know how to honor this heritage becomes a nightmare to its own people and to the world, becomes Reagan's America. And I just want to interrupt to say this Reagan and Bush hang over this uh, writing of a restricted country. So it was a very hard, mean-spirited time, as it promises to be again. And this is the text of a letter. Selma, Alabama, 1422 Washington Street, April 9th, 1965. Hi, Joan. It was a great pleasure to receive a sweet letter from you, and Ramona was so thrilled to have a letter of her own. Monday, I went to the courthouse to get registered, but I didn't get in before closing time, so I'll try again on the 19th. Judy doesn't live with us now. She has a room in the project near the church, but we keep in touch with each other, and we all miss you both very much. It was a pleasure to have had you live with us. Things here now are not as strong as they were when you were here, but they're going to pick up in a day or so. We still have mass meetings and sing all those freedom songs. I didn't have any stationary paper, but I wasn't going to let that stop me from writing. Everybody here is doing just fine. We are still praying the same prayer and that one day we shall overcome. We will be glad to have you at any time. I'll start burning the porch light on the last day of May looking for you. We shall overcome Mrs. M. Washington. The Lower East Side, New York, New York City, 1965. Carol had left me. I found a small one-room apartment on East 6th Street between Avenues A and B. Here in this compressed tenement, guarded day and night by a huge Polish man who sat framed in the always open door of his ground floor apartment in a chair that disappeared under him with his gout-stricken legs stretched out in front of him, I took refuge. I joined the others who were also much reduced in circumstances, black and white, young and old, children and adults. We crammed the sorrows and angers of our lives into the hard squareness of those small rooms. My fire escape was a gift both to me and to the neighborhood junkies. It provided me with another room in the hot evenings, and it gave them a freeway into my apartment. Clocks, radio, television, phonograph all disappeared with a regularity that became less frightening each time. Once I came home and saw the record album strewn across the floor. A careful selection had been made. I felt I was in the middle of a conversation with people whom I had never met. I would not give up access to the open air, however, and one afternoon my faith was proved right. I was sitting at my table in front of the open window, typing a paper for school. I looked up to think for a moment and saw a tiny gray head poking into the room. It was Catley, as I came to call her. She looked around, looked at me in the small room, then turned and disappeared. I went back to work, but stopped in amazement a short time later. The small gray cat had returned, only this time she had a smaller cat dangling from her mouth, the first of six kittens she would bring through the open window and deposit on the floor of my room. Catley never gave up her wandering ways, and I became the foster mother of her squirming brood. The Lower East Side, with its shabbiness and wonders, 
its freedoms and reductions, its tough little joys and unexpected havens was much like my open window. Because my television had disappeared in one of the earlier forays of my unknown visitors, I had not seen the images of hatred that were pouring out of Alabama that march, the black men, women, and children beaten with the flailing clubs of Jim Clark's men, the hoses turned full force on the peaceful marchers, washing away the grip of tightly held hands, slamming people against the earth, the trees, each other, the dog's teeth but bared in never-ending snarls, all those forces marshaled against a band of would-be voters. But I had ridden freedom buses into Philadelphia and Baltimore, had hidden from thrown rocks, had washed spit from my face and hair, had sat, had sat with CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, comrades at, a soda, at soda fountains, while the no trespassing laws were read to us, and had been dragged out of restaurants that black corps members would not even enter, could not even enter. We, the white pro protesters, acted as a fifth column. Usually, under the leadership of a minister, we would enter one of the segregated restaurants, pretending to be quiet couples. Then we would join each other at a table, remembering never to eat or drink anything that was on the table, not even the water. At a given signal, we would all rise, and the respectable air of the restaurant would be broken by the minister reading a statement announcing who we were and that we would not leave until our black comrades, who are now picketing and shouting outside the restaurant, were allowed to join us. The simple act of opening the door to all Americans never happened during those, these early years. Instead, the police were called, we were read our warnings, and then we were dragged out to join the demonstration. As whites, we were useful for infiltration. But what we learned was the unforgettable curse of our privilege. I wore a double mask in those early 60 years in those white restaurants. My first deception was to the enemy, the pose of a nice white person who could be led in and would sit down and eat in quiet tones, ignoring the battle for human dignity that was happening outside the windows. The second was to my friends, the pose of straightness, the invisibility of my queerness. They did not know that when the police entered with their sneers and itchy fingers, I was meeting an old antagonist. Perhaps their uniforms were a different color. But in the lesbian bars of my other world, I had met these forces of the state. I never told my comrades that I was different, because a secret seemed a little thing in such a time of history. Although I did not have the images flickering across a black and white screen, I had seen the photographs in the papers, the large black woman held to the ground by three white sheriffs, a nightstick across her throat, her skirt pushed up above her knees. All of us had seen and heard was what was happening in Selma. There was no place to hide. The night of the first attempt to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the night of the brutal attack on a citizen's army, Judith, a straight friend, called to tell me what she had seen on television and to ask me if I would go with her to Selma, Alabama to do voter registration work. I looked around me at the loss of love my life had become, at the hate that threatened all love. And I wanted to go, to do battle with another enemy besides my own despair, 
to use my body not for lovemaking, but for filling the ranks in the struggle to change history. The next day, Judith and I joined the small exodus that was taking place all over America. We both had never traveled to the Deep South before. We first flew to Atlanta to make connections for the flight to Selma. Once in the airport, our backpacks and northern white faces loudly proclaimed us as a new breed of hated carpetbaggers. The Atlanta airport was like a troop station during a war, except that both sides were visible and in close contact with each other. Scattered throughout the terminal were groups of young people with their sleeping bags, nuns and priests in larger groups talking quietly, small suitcases resting against their legs. We milled around, drawing closer to each other as the anger around us grew more distinct. Trapped into serving people they despised, the ticket agents could only load their responses with veiled verbal threats. As the young man handed us our tickets to Selma, he slowly looked us over and said, Going to Selma, huh? We'll make sure you have a real good time. The words dragged out with controlled rage. This small taste of belligerence in the face of threatened change was the beginning of my understanding of what black Southern Americans had been enduring and of the courage of the civil rights workers who had been living with threats against their lives every day. Like the other travelers bound for Selma, we discovered that we had to spend the night in the airport and so we attached ourselves to a group of nuns, sticking closely to them like the long-necked birds that walk in the shadows of elephants. The one place that seemed safe to sleep in was the women's bathroom, and for the next six hours we huddled on a tile floor waiting for the morning light. Early the next day our flight was announced, a small propeller plane that bounced its way to Selma. Nauseated by the mixture of fear and motion, I vomited during the flight, holding the white bag over my face as the reddish flats of the Selma countryside angled up towards us. Once on the ground, we were greeted by Jim Bevel, his head covered by an embroidered skullcap, his clear, direct eyes looking straight at us, the small group of northern do-gooders. He said, I hope you will be there when we come to New York. We knew immediately we were no more than what we were, still part of the killing problem, and he treated us as if we were tourists who had signed up for some offbeat adventurification. His gait and the lines around his eyes told us that for him this was a war he could not walk away from. He would, do, he would make do with whatever troops he had. We were taken to a small caravan of cars and driven to the African Methodist Episcopal Church which had become known to us as Brown's Chapel, to be welcomed and gathered up by the black families who would house us and show us the ways of surviving white hatred while we were there. The church was packed with families and civil rights workers, many fanning themselves as they looked over the new arrivals. Judith and I were called up to the stage and introduced to the congregation. The minister asked who would like to give us a place to stay, and Mr. and Mrs. Washington raised their hands. So did Ramona, their eight-year-old granddaughter. We went to meet them and were introduced to their oldest son, Walt, who quietly and courageously was to save our lives several weeks later. 
we went to their house, a white house with a wraparound porch and a tree in the front yard, on a block of similar houses not far from the church, but beyond the housing project where many of the other workers would be staying. We ended their home quietly, feeling the wonder of what had happened in this small southern town. Mrs. Washington brought us to their main bedroom at the front of the house and told Judith and me that this, this is where we would sleep. We said no, that we had sleeping bags and that the floor or the couch was fine. Mrs. Washington insisted we must sleep in their big comfortable bed while we were guests in their home. We picked you, she added, because you look clean. Her kindness and the domestic serenity of the bedroom again reminded me of the secret I carried, my queerness. And I feared I would not have been taken into this home if my lesbian self had stood in the church with me. But I accepted the weight of my disguise because I was so honored to be in this home and so moved to be even an infinitesimal part of this history. The room was peaceful, filled with the life of a long marriage White ruffled curtains framed the small windows, photographs sat on the worn dresser, and the bed creaked comfortably with layers of shared sleep. The whole moment, as I sat on my side of the bed with Judith changing for the night, was filled with the awe of what, of what events can do, with an awe for the graciousness and beauty of the human spirit of the Washingtons, who in the midst of this terrible battle turned over their comfort and their most intimate place to two white Jewish women from New York whom they had never seen before. It was as if hatred had caused the usual flow of events to unravel and reveal another world of possibilities below. The night was not peaceful. Judith, while knowing I was a lesbian, had never slept in the same bed with me before. Every time our bodies accidentally touched, she leaped to the other side of the bed. But the coming events were to make this discomfort with each other insignificant. Our, our assignments for the next two weeks separated us, and Judith never slept with me in the Washington's home again. All our days started at Brown's Chapel, and it was there that we learned where we would be needed for the week's activities. I was assigned to a group doing voter registration work in the poor, flat farmland surrounding Selma. We moved around the countryside in a car covered with red dust, a cadre of workers led by Bill, an older SNCC, and that stands for Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, made up of black students who are leading this battle by Bill, an older SNCC worker who was well known to the families we visited. We were two, we were two white ministers, and Ajak, a black divinity student who was to become a special friend, and myself, the only woman. On a first ride out, I watched the male interaction closely, realizing I had to learn the language of this new world. In the beginning, I felt like a foreigner in many ways to the religious discussions, to the land we were moving through, in the homes of the tenant farmers who stopped their work to listen to us, in the small, bare Baptist churches we visited to encourage community organizing and to give hope to the isolated groups that had already formed and were facing the anger of the whites around them. But we had work to do, and eventually my differences just became part of the pack I carried. I soon learned that while Bloody Sunday had shocked some of us into involvement, 
The struggle to gain voting rights had been going on in these counties for almost a year, and probably much longer. The men, women, and children who had responded to the call for action by SNCC and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference workers were now a family of peaceful resistors who were wise in their knowledge of the forces arrayed against them and who knew they would not be turned around. However isolated, however small the gathering, the sense of unity was dazzling. One day, our car pulled into a dirt road in front of a small wooden church, and inside waiting for us was a group of black young women and men standing in a circle to greet us. We joined the circle, the March sun streaming in through the high windows and making patches of light on the bare wood floor. Around the circle we went, saying our names, and for the new workers why we were there and why we had come and where we had come from. When it came to Ajax, he told us his real name and then added his nickname, saying, I heard you had some dirt down here, and I came to help clean it up. The congregation of grassroots activists laughed, and everything seemed possible. Later in the day, we were driving away from a visit to a tenant farmer's home on a dirt road that lined a newly tilled field. A troopist car appeared behind us, coming out of the dust we had stirred up along the road. Our driver, Bill, turned his head and told us to be careful and quiet. All around us stretched lonely, featureless earth in never-ending barren squares. We came to a stop, and the, troop, the trooper pulled in behind us. I turned my head, peering out the dust-covered back window, and saw a figure walking toward us who looked like a caricature of all I had heard about Southern sheriffs, except this was a real person. The sun glinted off the silver discs of his glasses. His hand rested on top of his gun, which he wore low over his wide stomach. He was big and square, and his face was tight with anger. Reaching the side of our car, he bent over and said to Bill, Get out of that car, boy. And Bill was in his 40s. The snick worker was a gray-haired man, lean and tall. Bill moved out of the car almost as if he was bored. The trooper made him stand spread-eagled with his hands flat on the roof of the car as he fris frisked him, lecturing Bill about getting his passengers out of the county if he knew what was good for him and stop stirring up trouble. We, the white northern visitors to this landscape, sat in a silence that choked us, a silence Bill had demanded. We knew we could go back home, back to a world where troopers didn't appear from nowhere and put a gun to your head. But this man, our teacher and protector, would not leave. His life and his family's life would be shadowed by this hunk of hatred. After this encounter, Bill slowly pulled his long body back into our little car and said it was time to call it a day. We returned in silence to the haven of Brown's Chapel. That afternoon was the first time I learned that fear had a taste, that terror could make you clench your ass muscles to keep from soiling yourself. All in one day, the circle of sunlight and hope and courage and the dryness of brutality. The days and nights settled into routine. I would rise early and help prepare Mr. Washington's breakfast, learning to make his coffee the way he liked it. 
He was a big, gentle man, always dressed in the blue dungaree overalls that he wore for work and that the male civil rights workers wore for uniforms. We would sit together in the large kitchen at the back of the house with Ramona running around getting ready for school and for her time at Brown's Chapel. All my fantasies about what a father would be like found a home in Mr. Washington, and his protective kindness became the symbol of the world I had discovered in Black Selma. Not that he couldn't get angry. He was at the beatings, at the dangers his children faced, at the way his wife was treated by the white women she worked for, at how their livelihood was endangered because he believed in his people's right to vote. But to me, he was a tree of kindness. The mornings would be spent in front of Brown's chapel, greeting the hundreds who were arriving every day, the nuns, young and strong-looking, the blonde, clean-cut ministers, the scruffy hippies, and the students from all over, Jewish and Christian, black and white, the SNCC and SCLC workers moved among us, organizing the new arrivals, caucusing in small groups, mapping the goals and dangers of each day. For several days there were marches into downtown Selma. During one of them, Ajax was clubbed in the head as he bent his body over a fallen woman. I saw him the next day with his head swathed in bandages, the ever-present paperback on a philosophical theme protruding from his back pocket. His spirit was not daunted, but his seriousness seemed to anchor his short, solid body closer to the ground. We all gathered back at the church as soon as it got dark, hundreds of us pouring in there through the double wooden doors, coming home after the tensions of the day. As the night, grew, as the night sky grew darker, the troopers gathered their cars around the chapel, turning their bright lights on its white wood walls, sitting or standing by their cars with the rifles cradled in their arms. Sometimes you'd hear the voice of Bull Moose Clark come booming out over his loudspeaker, Every night, hundreds of workers and families packed into the church built for 50 or 60 people, knowing the enemy had an easy target if his rage spilled over and he refused to respect the sanctuary of the church. This was America in 1965, and as we stood in our rows singing this little light of mine, we knew a mighty battle was raging and would rage, and I'm just going to say, and is raging again in America. Long after the church's lights had been shut off for the night, it would rage on into the years, and above the shouted ugliness of the bullhorns would saw the sweet, shining voices of the youngsters who always sat in front of the chapel, right under the altar, their heads rocking from side to side, their hands raised in big claps, swinging from side to side, giving the rest of us the beat of hope. Some nights after we left the church but had too much nervous energy to go to bed, we gathered in a large one-room grocery store and restaurant that served as a social center for the black community. We filled the room, a tired crowd of dusty, rumpled workers drown downing beers and cokes, while we listened to anyone who felt the need to speak out about the day's events. Here in this room was one version of the living flesh of the 60s. We were a mass of differences. Even our voices spoke in the accents of different geographies, the sharp New England twang, the harsher fuller, fuller vowels of the Bronx and Brooklyn, the soft draws, drawls of the South and West. 
But here we put aside the places we had come from and listened to the place we were in. Here we heard stories about daily life in Selma if you were black and involved in the civil rights struggle. In quiet voices, we were told about friends who disappeared off the streets and were never seen again, about the bodies found floating in backcountry rivers, about the beatings. We sat with our arms around each other, laid our heads on shoulders, just rested, and felt safe for the few hours we were there. In the face of this history, and in that large, worn room, we shared a tenderness perhaps only warriors without weapons know. One evening, I sat at one of the few tables across from a short, curly-haired young man from New York who was questioning the meaning of the world in that special way some New Yorkers have. He was filled with personal doubt and sounded as if he was sitting in a Greenwich Village cafe throwing existential challenges to the world. Next to me sat a young minister, his arm draped across my shoulders. Ajax stood leaning on the counter, and all the others in their overalls and tired faces were listening gently to the New Yorker's self-involved monologue. We all knew that he was a new arrival, holding on to what he had come with and not yet seeing what Selma would ask of him. The minister waited till he finished, then reached out and smoothed the young man's lowered head. We have all come with secrets, he said. His words raced inside of me, and I wanted to shout mine, but one neurotic New Yorker was enough for any movement that night, I laughingly said to myself. The contrast between the safety of that room and the world outside became terribly clear one night when Judith and I lingered too long at the store. We had been warned to be off the streets by nine o'clock, but lulled by the camaraderie we felt, we stayed until after ten. We put on a brave face and refused escorts home, stepping into the night air and walking quickly until we came to the highway we had to cross. All of a sudden, a pickup truck filled with men, their faces shining like white moons, roared toward us. We saw the rifles cradled in their arms, and their voices came loud and clear. We're going to get you, you nigger lovers! Judith and I started to run across the highway, down the long sidewalk, pushing at the limbs of the full trees to clear our way. In our panic, we soon became aware that someone was running after us, and we looked desperately for the porch light that Mrs. Washington always kept shining for us. With a final burst of speed, we made it to the safety of the porch. Out of the night, we soon saw who our pursuer was. Walter, the Washington's oldest son, had waited for us outside the store to make sure we made it home all right. Judith and I collapsed into nervous giggles like schoolgirls afraid of being caught in some slight offense. But the sight of Walter standing there, thin and shy, quickly silenced us. This was no game, no prank. This was a time and place where black children died because they wanted to be free. While we spent the week doing voter registration work, Plans were proceeding for another march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. One night in the church, white index cards were given out to the visitors who wanted to be part of the new assault via Highway 80. We were asked to identify ourselves, list our organizational affiliations, religion, and place of birth, 
and write a short statement about we, why we wanted to march to Montgomery. We knew that only a small number of the hundreds who had poured into Selma w- would be selected, and we sat in concentrated silence, writing our best historical selves, while the families fanned themselves and chatted. How ironic it must have seemed to them to watch us vying for the honor of doing what they had done out of desperation of ang- and anger. Of course, we now had media protection. The wounds of three weeks earlier had been inflicted on plain folks. Now the ranks of would-be marches were swollen with politicians, newspeople, celebrities, clerics of many denominations, and northern students like myself. Even the federal government was promising protection. The eyes of this nation, that's the United States, would be on that 54-mile march to Montgomery. I did not put the word lesbian on my card. I put Jewish and feminist. I wrote about saying that's saying against nuclear war and core. I did not talk about the bars I went to and, and the knowledge about bigotry I had gained from being queer. I had no expect, expectation of being selected. But the next night, when the names were read, mine was among them. I was honored beyond belief. My friends kissed me, my neighbors hugged me. Ramona jumped with delight and led me to the row of doctors and nurses who would accompany us. The final test was a brief physical exam to make sure the chosen ones were healthy enough for the walk. I stood next to a thin, freckled-faced nun who rolled up her habit sleeve to have her blood pressure taken. We grinned at each other. Three hundred of us would eventually make the whole trip, led by those who risked their lives earlier in the month. The fear would come later, but that night and the next morning was filled with celebration and preparation. The morning of the march, the Washingtons and I had a big breakfast together. Prayers were said asking for the safety of the marches, and Mr. Washington announced that he and Ramona would, would march with me for a little ways. We made plans to reunite the night before the final march into Montgomery, the night of the mass rally on the grounds of the St. Jude convent. The sun shone brightly as 3,000 people set out from Brown's Chapel and followed the same route that had turned bloody three weeks before. We walked down Selma's main street, the jeering whites almost blocked from our vision by the phalanx of police that walked and rode alongside us. As we crossed over the small bridge, the leaders stopped the march to commemorate the courage of those who had come before. You beat up on a hundred and a thousand return, one of them said. What I remember most of those early hours was the feel of my hand in Mr. Washington's, the sight of his big farmer's body, and Ramona chanting and singing on his other side. He and Ramona left me soon after we reached Highway 80, and then I settled into the rhythm of the walk, singing, always singing, with the red clay banks on one side of us and across the highway the newly tilled cotton fields. We only walked seven miles that first day before we put up the big tents that would prove flimsy protection against the night cold. The first night we all slept together, men and women, in whatever space we found. 
I shared a piece of cardboard with a black minister from New Jersey. Cardboard became a much sought-after commodity, the only covering for the ground we had. The trucks with our sleeping bags had gone ahead, and because of a confusion, we wouldn't, we wouldn't see them until the march was over. The next day, we did better. Our ranks were now pared down to the 300 marchers who would go the whole way. We had a walking rhythm and covered 16 miles that Monday. For some of us, the walk was easy. We were young and strong. But there were others who struggled with the miles. That night, we were told we had to sleep in sex-segregated tents because the nation's newspapers were reporting that sex orgies were going on in the night. We laughed at the rumors, but now I find it particularly interesting that sex and race were so immediately highlighted. My lesbian self wondered at the futility of the precautions, and I became even more careful about my actions. The March winds turned cold after dark, a bitter cold that few of us were prepared for. I spent long hours standing around the improvised heaters, large metal garbage cans filled with wood that we fed throughout the night. Like hobos, we surrounded the crackling fires, black and white women and men, trying to find some warmth in that southern night. Tiredness eventually overcame me, and I walked into the huge women's tent, feeling lonely and careful. Joan, Joan, over here! It was one of the young women I had met in the church in a church visit. She was lying on pieces of cardboard with three of her friends. A thin blanket covered them, and she offered to share it with me. I lay down with them. We huddled close together, trying to squeeze out what warmth we could. On Tuesday, the weather turned against us, but we had reached our destination, the large grounds of St. Jude. We spent the day erecting tents and building the stage out of wooden caskets turned upside down. I remember especially a small hunchbacked white man who spent the day crawling over the coffins, hammering hour after hour. I helped prepare drinks for the workers and the incoming demonstrators. We set up huge kettles of lemonade in the middle of the field and ladled out hundreds of cups. Then Frank, a middle-aged black man, and I walked the boundaries of the, co of the convent, serving the security guards. He told me about his wife and how he wanted to leave the South. I told him about the Lower East Side, but not about my woman lovers. Again, I felt the contradiction between kept silences and new honesties. When we had quenched the thirst of the workers, we found the convent's kitchen. The huge kettles had to be washed out, and we needed running water. The large institutional kitchen was in the back of the building. And sitting in the open doorway were six older black women wearing starched white uniforms and small white caps, the domestic staff for the convent. All the nuns we had met were white. We asked permission to use the sink, and without a word, they nodded their heads, staring at Frank and me the whole time. They had never seen a white woman do this work, Frank said, as we practically climbed into the pots. Later that day, as I was helping Ajax pull on one of the heavy tent lines, I heard my name called out. It was Judith running across the field. We hugged and laughed and promised to find each other when the march was over. She was to stay many more months than I. I spent the rest of the day working with Ajax, and then we were given shelter in the convent. The nuns were particularly attentive when they discovered I was Jewish. 
One young woman gave me a pair of pajamas to change into and led me into a hidden cupboard so I could change without being seen. One of the male marchers was having tea in a small parlor right outside my improvised dressing room, and the nun was especially concerned that he did not see me. The pajamas had small hearts on them and were of a light seersucker fabric. I had not worn pajamas like these since I was a little girl. I was given the one available cot while my comrades slept on the floor, on chairs pulled together and on couches. I woke the next morning to a sweet-faced nun bending over me, her cross swaying before my eyes. For one minute I didn't know where I was, and then I saw our muddy boots and I remembered. That night thousands poured into the campgrounds. I rejoined Judith and we stayed busy trying to keep an eye on Ramona and get some sleep for the next day. Rain had turned the campground into a muddy swamp. But, but, but the big show with stars like Joan Byers and Shelley Winters still went on. We all sat in little wooden chairs sinking into mud as the coffins became the stage. At some point, the huge spotlights went out. An argument broke out between civil rights workers and the police who refused to help. I was standing next to a mobile home, one of the many that housed the more famous marches, when I saw a small group of workers, police, and National Guardsmen approach the trailer. One of the workers pounded on the door, and a very drunk, very voluptuous Shelley Winters, an aside, she was an American actress, she since has died, who was a down-to-earth, um, full-busted woman, a wonderful comedian, and a wonderful actress. Okay. <laughs> One of the workers pounded on the door, and a very drunk, very voluptuous Shelley Winters opened it. Help us, please, Miss Winters, the worker pleaded. We need the lights for the military trucks to light up the stage. Winters was leaning out over the doorway of the van, her low-cut dress getting wet in the pouring rain. Honey, come here, she said in a slurred, amused voice, motioning to the National Guard big shot. He approached, and she whispered something in his ear. He laughed and cupped his hand over her full breast. Okay, give them the lights, he shouted to the gathered crowd. When I got back to the tent, Judith had secured a sleeping spot for us, our number now grown by one. A tall, raw-boned blonde woman had joined us. We slept that night, along with thousands of others, on a bed of warm mud. The morning light came slowly, and marches stumbled out into the gray, glad the night was over and anxious for the final stage of the march to begin. Everywhere, cries of recognition ran out for people had kept arriving throughout the night, and old friends ran to greet each other. From under one of the tent flaps appeared Susan, my first woman lover. We just had time to shout hello to each other before we had to line up. Ajax joined me, and we waited for what seemed like days for the thousands to assemble. At some point the sun came out, and then we moved, and I can still see it, that's an aside, a huge rope of people, hands joined in long lines that stretched from one side of the road to the other. We turned a corner, and there was the dome of the Alabama Capitol shining at the end of the broad street, a Confederate flag flying high above the national banner. Jeering white faces greeted, greeted us. The gesture I remember the most was man after man grabbing his crotch as the interracial lines marched by. Those last minutes seemed to fly. 
Dr. King spoke to us. Helicopters flew overhead, ambulance and tr ambulances and trucks with our gear roared up and down the streets. We had made it to the forbidden spot. What had started with blood and raw courage ended in an interracial community of 25,000 people besieging the Alabama state capitol in the full glare of live television coverage. But while the speeches went on, we were told over and over again by the SNCC and SCLC workers to get out of town fast. The fury that had lined the streets was beginning to spill over. As the sun went down on that day, we lost the protection of the media, the illusion of a transforming victory. At 8 o'clock that night, as marches were being transported back to Selma, Viola Greg Liuso, a volunteer driver, was shot to death by a carload of KKK men on the same Highway 80 that we had sung and clapped our way down two days before. Ajax and I were among the thousands trucked to the airport, only to discover that many of the major airlines were refusing to take us. We finally found room on a charter flight belonging to a large group of black Baptist ministers who were flying home to Philadelphia. We were numb with both tiredness and emotional exhaustion but we knew that he was coming home with me. I put out of my mind his words to me back in Montgomery when we were waiting to be picked up. The only group of people I can't stand are homosexuals. We have been through so much together, and his goodness, his fine toughness, drew me to him. Once we reached Philadelphia, we spent another night on the ground, this time on the marble floor of the bus terminal, waiting for our connection back to New York. In the morning, we were treated like soldiers returning from a courageous or treacherous battle, depending on the racial politics of the spectator. Some people shouted obscenities at us. One black's taxi driver gave us two silver dollars to commemorate the Selma march. We were dirty, marked by that red clay. Our sleeping bags hung low on our backs. But then we finally emerged onto 42nd Street, with the New York sun welcoming us home, all the grandeur of that time soared within us. Ajax stayed with me for a week in my Lower East Side apartment. We made love, and he cried when he came in me. I held him tight to me and wondered at my own stillness. We talked of marriage, of opening an interracial orphanage. All of this was still the legacy of Selma. Then it was time for him to return home to his studies at the Divinity School. For another week we wrote to one another, and then I finally had to tell him I was a lesbian, that I did not know what I could be in the future, but that he had to know that about me. I never heard from him again. I wrote two more letters begging him just to talk to me, but I am sure Ajax felt a dream had been smashed. But not the larger dream, Ajax, not the dream you had in that small, brave church somewhere in Lowndes County, Alabama. And I have carried Selma with me all these years as well. Not to prove my civil rights credentials, for I know more than anyone how little I really did in the face of lives that were committed to that struggle every day but because Selma is to me the wonder of history marked on a people's face and on their soul. Now all the secrets are out, and I can march against apartheid with the lesbian herseries banner carried proudly in the open air. 
and all around me are other gay women and men joining voices with the thousands more to say no to a killing racism and yes to a new world of liberated lives. I carry with me the belief that Mr. and Mrs. Washington would still greet me at their front door. This is the letter I received. Selma, Alabama, Washington Street, April 9th, 1965. Dear Joan, Judy has moved to the project so she can be closer to the church, and I enjoyed reading your letter. And we enjoyed you and Judy staying with us. This might be a short letter, but I am glad Mother reminded me to write you because I was getting ready for Easter program. I hope that you can come back and visit us again, and I just might have a surprise for you. Come back with love, Ramona. <laughs>